For most Christians, the fact of Christ's resurrection is a matter of great rejoicing, and rightly so. But often, I think, the full impact of the resurrection is lost on us. That Jesus conquered death is a most glorious truth. But he did that for others during his three years of ministry. He did it for Lazarus. He did it for the widow's son. He did it for Jairus' daughter. And the apostles were able to raise people from the dead. If Christ's resurrection is only one more example of that, it isn't actually all that special. And it certainly isn't unique, if that's all it is. Is the resurrection of Christ just another example of someone raised from the dead? Or is there more to it than that? And what of Christ's ascension, his going back into heaven, what is sometimes referred to as his exaltation or his glorification as he returns to be with his heavenly father What significance is there for us as believers in that? Hopefully some of the hymns we've been singing have given you some big clues as to what the answers are. What part, if any, do these things have to do with our salvation? He died for our sins on the cross. Isn't that all there is to it? Now, I don't mean to sound belittling, or diminishing the cross when I say all there is to it. But what I mean is, are we correct to think that everything to do with salvation is only about the cross and nothing else? Well, as you probably worked out, I'm going to say no. It isn't only about the cross and nothing else. As wonderful as the cross is. As central as the crucifixion of Jesus is, as I hope you saw last week, our salvation isn't only about that. There are other aspects of our salvation, and they depend upon additional truths about the Lord Jesus Christ, other things that he did, where he is now, what ministry he continues to operate right now, and those things which are yet to be, which are part of our salvation also. Our salvation is as glorious and amazing as it is because of its extent, because of how much it embraces. Often we only tend to think about this much, but actually there's this much. Now some of the things that I've touched upon Already, we'll be considering those further downstream in this series. For today, our focus is the resurrection of Christ and his ascension back into heaven and his exaltation. Before I go any further, just a brief word about 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that we read from earlier. As many of you know, this is a really fundamental chapter on the subject of the resurrection. And in it, Paul, first of all, speaks about the fact of the resurrection 
That's in verses 1 to 11. Then in verses 12 to 19, Paul explains that Christ's resurrection is an integral part of Christ's saving work. And the resurrection is an integral part of the gospel that we preach. And that's as far as we're going to get this morning. In the rest of chapter 15, Paul explains the future significance of the resurrection for Christian believers. And we'll return to that topic as the series draws towards a close. So I want to look at three things with you this morning regarding the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And what it is about the fact that Christ is now seated in that exalted place alongside his heavenly father. Why is that so important for us? Albeit that he is there now as one who forever will be both God and man. Well, first of all, let's turn our attention to the resurrection. And let's think, first of all, about the reality of Christ's resurrection. The fact that he really did rise from the grave. And then our second point is going to be the nature of his resurrection. So first of all, the reality of it. And secondly, will be the nature of it. Now, all four Gospels record Jesus rising again the third day and how he was seen by various people in various places at various times. The four records are not identical, but you can, you can weave them together and get a really good picture of all that took place. In Acts chapter 1 verse 3, we read these words that Jesus presented himself alive by many infallible proofs. The people who were around in New Testament days were under no doubts or illusions whatsoever that they had seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, who as Saul of Tarsus was the arch-skeptic and persecutor-in-chief of the church, tells of his own personal encounters, both at his conversion and later, with a risen and very much alive Lord Jesus Christ. Something very significant indeed persuaded Saul of Tarsus to change his mind about Jesus. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that on one occasion, 500 people at once saw Christ, most of whom were still alive at the time of him writing and available to be questioned. Go and talk to them, he says. A fascinating detail in Matthew's account concerns the men who'd been posted to guard the tomb, which of course had also been sealed. And those guards witnessed the earthquake that we read about. They witnessed the appearance of the angel that we read about. They witnessed the arrival of the women at the tomb that we read about. They witnessed the stone being rolled away to reveal that the tomb was empty. They saw it. And when they went to the authorities to report what they'd seen, they were bribed with a large sum of money to say that the disciples came and stole the body 
while they were asleep. Well, that wouldn't be very good for their own reputation. Soldiers asleep when they should be watching. But it's got a rather big hole in it, that story, hasn't it? If they're fast asleep, how could they have seen who took the body? But of course, they were very much awake. They saw the whole thing. We're told that they were terrified and stood like dead men. And what about Peter? Well, what about him? Well, remember Peter. On the night of Christ's arrest, Peter was so frightened, he couldn't even bring himself to acknowledge that he knew Jesus, let alone was one of the disciples. But listen to Peter at Pentecost. Listen to the difference in this man. This is the man who three times denied that he even knew Jesus and then stood up in front of a vast crowd of people and said this. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would rise up, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. What a difference in the man in just a few short weeks. Did Peter not realize or think that if he started preaching about Jesus like this, the authorities may well do to him what they did to Jesus? Probably. But you see, Peter had seen him. He's alive. And remember, these gospels were circulating while many of these eyewitnesses were still alive. They could be questioned. Their testimonies could be checked and compared for inconsistencies and contradictions or for their startling similarities. Indeed, Luke, the medical doctor, man of science for his day, tells us that that's precisely what he did. He carried out his own research before writing his gospel. And as far as he was concerned, these are all verifiable facts. And it was he who wrote the Acts of the Apostles and who tells us that there were many infallible proofs. Many have set out to try and disprove the resurrection of Jesus and to disprove the biblical record of it. No one has ever succeeded. Indeed, some who set out to disprove it became convinced of it. Some even got saved and became Christians on account of it. There's one very well-known book, Who, Who Moved the Stone? 
a guy called Frank Morrison. He set out completely unconvinced, suspecting that actually he's going to show that this is all hocus pocus. He became a Christian. The reality of the resurrection. Secondly, the nature of it. The nature of it. Now, first of all, we need to make clear that this was a real resurrection, not a resuscitation. This wasn't a mere regaining of consciousness of one who had appeared to be dead. It wasn't that Jesus was on the brink of death and had just seemed as dead. He actually died. Jesus died. Roman crucifixion wasn't something you recovered from. I can assure you of that. They knew their job. They did it brutally, efficiently. Jesus was dead. Now, I mentioned earlier that there were those who were raised from the dead in New Testament times. There were those who were raised from the dead in Old Testament times. But in New Testament times, we're familiar with some of the stories. Now, Christ's resurrection was very different to those in a number of significant ways. Well, for one thing, all of those people who were raised, they needed another who was still alive and who was far, had far greater power and authority than they did in order to raise them. No one stood outside the tomb where Jesus lay and called out to him like he had done for Lazarus. It's very important to see that the Bible explains that Christ's resurrection was entirely God's own work, both Christ himself and that of his heavenly father. Jesus himself, while he was alive and ministering, said, and it's recorded in John's gospel, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. John 10. The Bible also affirms the activity of God the Father in the raising of Jesus. We, we read in Romans, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. And in the very opening of his letter to the Galatians, Paul writes this, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. It was the work and power of God that brought Christ back from the grave. Now, another way in which Christ's resurrection was very different to those he had raised from the dead is that whilst he did have a physical body, it had properties that it hadn't had previously. Those people that Jesus raised from the dead, they tasted death again. They died again. Some of you are thinking it's bad enough having to face death once. They faced it twice. They died again. Their return to life was just a short, rep short reprieve 
one day death came to their door again. Christ's resurrection body was going to be a body and is a body that will never age, never deteriorate, never decay and never die. And he would return into the eternal presence of God in that body. In the gospel accounts, we read of Jesus after his resurrection, talking, eating, being touched. He showed to Thomas the, the, the marks of the wounds that the nails and the spear had made. On one occasion, he lit a fire and cooked them breakfast. There are some who suggest that Jesus only took on this physical form on occasions when he needed to, a little bit like when angels appear in the Old Testament, for example. But that's just not how the New Testament reads. That Jesus was mostly spirit, but just now and again appeared in a physical form. And Jesus says something very interesting in chapter 24 of Luke's gospel. He says, a spirit cannot have flesh and bones like I do. Can't be true. Now, throughout the Bible, there are these accounts. It's interesting we had this story this morning. Um, we have these accounts, don't we, of angels appearing, looking like men. They have an appearance of being human. And they seem to be able to do things that humans can do. But Jesus said that a spirit and an angel is a spirit creature. They don't have flesh and bone like he now has. So Jesus surely here is making a very important distinction. So on occasions, God sends his angels in the temporary appearance of men, but they were never flesh and bone like Jesus is. Never. For God to give one of his angels an appearance of a man, well, that's God's prerogative to do. God has the power and the authority to be able to do it. And in the Bible, we only ever read of angels who God has sent as appearing in this way. So we can safely say that those appearances were all God's doing. Surely God alone has the power and authority to do that where he so chooses. But Jesus in his resurrection body is not of that order or type. He expressly says so. His resurrection body is real. This is real flesh and bone, he says. And in that flesh and bone body, he ascended into heaven. And that leads to our third point which is the significance of the resurrection. Why is it so significant? Why is it so important? Why does Paul include it as being part of the gospel message in 1 Corinthians 15? 
Why does he just not say it's, it's just about the cross? Why does he go on and include the fact that Jesus went to the grave and then rose again? Well, do you remember one of the things that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 later on? If Christ is not risen, our preaching is empty, your faith is also empty. And we're found to be false witnesses because we've said Jesus is raised, but people could think we're lying. And he concludes by saying this, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. And those who've died, they've perished. Well, as I said earlier, Paul goes on from there to talk about the significance of Christ's resurrection, the significance of Christ's resurrection for our future hope of everlasting life. And we'll come back to that. But even before he gets there, he says that we have no gospel at all if Christ is not risen. But what about the cross and all that we looked at last week? What about Christ's suffering and death? What about that phrase, penal substitution, that he died in our place? Is that not the gospel? Well, yes, of course. But it's not all the gospel. There's more to it than that. Do you remember two weeks ago, I used the picture of a battered old wreck of a car that was fit only for the scrap heap. And what happened? The owner returned and loved it and paid for it and bought it back and saved it. Saved it from the scrap heap. But do you remember also that our salvation is not just about being saved from something. It's also about being saved for something. It's about being restored and renewed and reconciled to God forever. The Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but that in Christ we can be made alive. Following his death, Jesus went to the grave. That's where you and I will go when we die. The wages of sin is death. Now, Jesus didn't just die. He went to the place of death. He went to the grave. His body went where dead bodies go. He went to the place where our sins will take us. To the grave. But he didn't stay there. Did he? That's the point. You see, when he went to the cross, he went to the place where we should go. But when he went to the grave, he went to the place where we should go. But he didn't stay there. We read some great words in that hymn before. Did you notice? Christ has risen from death's prison. Isn't that great? He has, you know. 
he broke it. He broke out of it. He defeated the grave. And he rose in a renewed body in the power of an endless life. That's why it's part of the gospel message. When a sinner becomes a saved and born again child of God, a miracle of renewal takes place. The dead are made alive. Now it's limited for now to a spiritual reality within the soul. But in the future, as Paul talks about in the second half of 1 Corinthians 15, in the future it's going to become a physical reality as well. And we'll get to that later in the series. But in becoming a Christian, in even becoming a Christian, there is this necessity of new spiritual life that God brings to those who once were dead. And the Bible teaches that the reason we can have this newness of life is on account of Christ's new life. And the full demonstration of his victory over sin and death by means of his resurrection. Because he has defeated death and is now alive, in him we have defeated death and are now made alive. We are united with him on the cross, in the grave, and in his resurrection. There's a picture of that in baptism, isn't there? We've been united to Christ in these things. So listen how the Bible speaks about it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up together and made us sit at the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the very basis by which we have new life. It's the resurrection of Christ from the grave. We're brought from death to life on account of the fact that Jesus has gone from death to life. And we've been united to him. That's the gospel. His new life beyond the grave is my new life beyond the grave and yours. And you have the reality of it now and in the future, you're going to see a reality of it like you can't even begin to imagine. Paul tells us that the fact of God's raising Christ from the dead is to be a source of great assurance for every single one of us. He says, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? The same power is in you. The same power is at work in you, Christian the power of God that raised Christ is the same power that has brought new, you to newness of life and to faith and repentance and hope and will see you into all of eternity. 
In a few weeks' time, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of justification. I'm not going to go into all of that now because we'll do that then. But justification is talking about what it is that actually makes us right with God again. What is it that happens so that in terms of God's justice, he no longer sees us as guilty sinners deserving condemnation? What is it that happens that God can declare that about us? That's justification. Well, in Romans 4, Paul teaches us that our being justified with God, our being right with God, depends upon the fact of Christ's resurrection and of his being received back into heaven. Because that welcome back into glory that Christ receives, we're going to be thinking about this as we close, this welcoming back of the Father, of his Son, into glory, demonstrates that the Father is completely satisfied with everything that his Son has done. This is the Son in whom the Father is still well pleased as he receives him back and seats him at his right side in glory. And the Bible emphasizes our union with Christ in all of these things, as we saw from that scripture from Ephesians chapter 2. We become partakers, we become sharers of all that Christ has done. Glorious, this message. So Christ has died for our sins, yes. But his body also went to the place where your body will go. But he broke out from the grave. He broke out from that prison. He's defeated it. And he's risen to a new and endless life. And in his new resurrection life, you have life. And all of that righteousness that he secured in his sinless life is also now put to your account. Salvation embraces so much. The extent of it is just... Where are the words? Where are the words? Well, let's just conclude just for a few moments. I just want to mention a few things regarding Christ's ascension back into heaven. It occurred 40 days after his resurrection. There are several accounts. Um, there's a great account of it right at the beginning of uh, Luke's record of the Acts of the Apostles. In Acts chapter 1, let me just uh, read what Paul records for us there from verse 9. Now when Jesus had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And then they returned to Jerusalem. What is the significance of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ in this resurrection body was taken back up to be with his heavenly father? Well, let me just read a few scriptures and then I'll make a few points in closing. First of all, we read in Ephesians 1, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, 
which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, we read that before, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Philippians 2, therefore God also has highly exalted him, given him the name which is above every name, 1 Peter 3, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him and every creature, Revelation 5, which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honour and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. This resurrected and ascended Jesus isn't just a glorious saviour. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is seated right now with his father in his resurrection body, the God-man in heaven, from where he reigns in power and authority over all things. The head of the church, who even now intercedes for us at God's right hand, and who even now prepares a place for us where we will spend all of eternity with him and who is working out all of the Father's will from all eternity past and who has sent down God the Holy Spirit who now is the active person of the Godhead in every single Christian believer and in anyone who's ever going to come to faith in Christ. Christ and the Father sending the Spirit, sending the Spirit, sending the spirit and what does he do he brings new birth he brings understanding he illuminates and opens our minds and our hearts like he did Lydia on the live on the riverbank the Lord opened her heart that's the Holy Spirit at work and he brings repentance he brings faith and he causes us to trust in Christ that's Christ's doing from heaven he produces that in us. He brings those merits of Christ to bear upon us. Through the Spirit, Christ makes his home within us. One day he'll, he'll return. Well, I've barely scratched the surface of these great themes this morning. But they ought to move us. They ought to stir us up. It should urge us on in our walk with Christ and in our desire to serve him. It should encourage us to keep seeking those things which are above because that's where Christ is. To keep setting our minds on those things which are above because that's where Christ is, not on the things of the earth. It should remind us that indeed we have been made alive in Christ and a new life of righteousness in him. We have it now. It should cause us to remember that one day we shall be with him where he is. So let's be worthy of such a glorious king. It should fill us with assurance and comfort and strength and hope.
to know that the one who we serve and proclaim is the risen, living, sovereign Lord, working out all of his purposes, holding every single one of us in his hand. We were buried with him through baptism into death, says Paul, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a difference that makes in the life of the Christian. Well, let's sing a hymn as we close.